Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Can't you stop saying fuck all the time? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers. Dave, we called our guest for today, Eddie Namias, the Fredo of experimental philosophy. What godfather character are you? Um, you know, I don't want to be arrogant about this sort of thing because usually I'm, I'm actually well known for my humility, but uh, I, I have to be the consigliere. I, I'm the, I don't remember, Tom <laughs> I'm Tom Hagen. I'm, I'm the, the Robert Duvall character. Is that, is that what's it? Yeah. Robert Duvall. Yeah, Robert Duvall. Yeah. 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 I just yeah, feel like I'm, everybody turns to me, you know? Uh, yeah. I was thinking more, <laughs> you're that guy right at the beginning of the movie who's who just keeps repeating himself what an honor it is uh, luca, you're luca brazzi luca brazzi that, that guy uh, on my daughter's wedding day i i felt re- actually felt a little bad but last time when you uh, went out of your way to call eddie fredo my heart just sank and i thought to myself eddie will never ever want to talk to us um, I, I don't I don't think you remember that you I actually directly said that his experimental methods were <laughs> shabby and it was just really bad social psychology and there was a quote like I'm looking in your direction Eddie not I maybe but I called you Fredo and and you out of cowardice flipped it and just and and all of a sudden Eddie became Fredo <laughs> I know. You know who I felt like is that little kid, that kid on Game of Thrones, which I just started watching. Mm. You know the little, the blonde little prince. Oh yeah, he's, he's oh, so yeah. weak, Joffrey. And so he takes out his weakness and his insecurities <laughs> about his weakness on like the, the <laughs> few people who can't defend themselves, little it's, girls. <laughs> He'll get even worse, but his haircut remains like yours. So speaking uh, of talking our way out of things. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so here's another example where I don't believe I was the only one that talked trash. <laughs> you were but, so... uh, we made a couple of comments about partially examined life. In, <laughs> uh, that's a podcast. Let, let uh, me tell. Can I tell the story at least about so that I can exonerate myself? At, at some point, at some point, uh, a few episodes in, um, Tamler says, "Oh, there's this other philosophy podcast, and uh, they're kind of doing like what what we're we were already they were already doing what we're trying to do, which is an informal sort of discussion about philosophical topics. And I, somehow, somehow, you thought that just maligning them on on wax, as we say, as the kids say, <laughs> would be the right solution to deal with <laughs> with a threatening presence." 
No, I, okay. I, I thought of it more like we were young, up and coming, hungry rappers. <laughs> and so, how do you make a name for yourself? Yeah. By like, a you know, taking a few shots, taking a few shots at the people who are currently on top. And so, that's what we did. I don't think it was that bad, actually, because I think there was one part of it where that we might have hopefully cut. <laughs> Uh, anyway normally we wouldn't care about this that much but uh, we got a very nice email but also a blog post write-up on partially examined life mostly praising our first two episodes on free will although taking a little shot at us at the end for claiming to be the the only philosophy podcast that did it in a very informal way and that weren't trying to educate they said a there are most podcasts try to be informal, although I don't think that's true of most philosophy podcasts. It is true of theirs. Of theirs. But B, we are trying to educate, which I think they're just wrong about that. If you just listen to a few more episodes, you'll see that you learn now. Our quality control has gone way down. <laughs> yeah, so uh, give Partially Examined Life a listen, but don't uh, listen to them instead of listening. Oh, there's, there's plenty of room for two podcasts in people's lives. plenty of Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so... One way that we are hoping to grow our audience is through a new Twitter account, at Very Bad Wizards, which we urge you guys to join up with. Um, what do you do? Follow. Follow us there. Really, that's mostly being run by uh, listener Matt Welsh, who has generously offered to help us with promotional stuff and operating certain things that Dave and I aren't particularly good at, like social media, Twitter, that kind of stuff. That's right. Um, he's even started, uh, or by the time you hear this, probably it'll be on uh, a, t- a Tumblr. A, a Tumblr account, because that's where the kids are, I think, too. Yeah, that's which I, I barely even know what that is. But <laughs> <laughs> it looked great. Did you see what he did? You see yeah, he no, did? it looks like, it looks amazing. It looks, but thanks a lot, Matt. We really we really appreciate uh, Matt Welch's help. It. So follow us at Very Bad Wizards. You know all the normal things like rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and stuff like that. But follow us there. If you have any particular tweet that you want to send to us, content wise on about the show or something like that, probably better to do it to our personal accounts, right? At Tamler and at Peas. Yeah, we check those regularly. So yeah, no, I'm 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 happy that we seem to have like an actual online presence. This is this is very modern for me. It's a little scary to be honest. I don't. Uh, it's a little what? It's a little scary. It's a little scary. And we get yeah. emails from – because then uh, I feel like we're just out there and we get emails from people and sometimes they just don't know what to say back. And uh, That might be the lamest thing you've ever said. <laughs> Let's edit. I just, get, I just get so scared. I get over – I don't know what to do. I'm so overwhelmed. We're getting emails and what am I supposed to say back? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, all right. <laughs> Do you want to briefly talk about, before we bring Eddie on very quickly, this issue that was suggested to us about children? Yeah, and this actually might, it might, it, it might actually require a longer conversation because I think it's a really interesting topic. But, but the question put to us was how to know whether it's worth it to have kids or not, right? And this was Anthony Derwin, who's actually somebody who's worked with Fiery Cushman um, and has emailed us before. It, it, the question is, what, what, are the reasons to to decide to have children or not, right? Right. And 
shit. And they say, yeah, what are the factors one should consider when deciding whether to have children? He says, both of you often discuss your children on your podcast, but I don't remember you ever mentioning your reasons for having kids or the downsides or how you made the decision. And then he talks about some philosophy on it that... Uh, you know, some people say it's your having children causes undue harm to the child. Right, right, as opposed to not having them. I guess yeah, that not not existing as an option is sometimes better than existing. <laughs> I suppose there's, a, a, there's an old Jewish joke, a Yiddish joke. My dad always says on that. So it's one old Jewish guy sitting next to another one and says, "You know, this life it's so hard. Sometimes I think it would have been better never to have been born." And then the other guy says, "Well, yeah, sure, but." Who has such a luck? Maybe one in a thousand? <laughs> yeah. Um, Very funny, like, metaphysically interesting joke, too. The idea that <laughs> you only have a one in a thousand chance of not being born. Not being born. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like social science statistics. I, you know, I'll never forget when I was in graduate school, and I was I was married but didn't have kids. And um, I remember hearing Paul Bloom, our, my my one of my advisors and our former guest uh, here on the show uh, talking about he, he had two sons who were, you know, in their uh, like four or five. One of them was about four or five. The other one was about eight or nine, something like that. And uh, he would complain all the time. He would always be saying things like, oh, I got to do this or, oh, my kid did that. And it always he was grumbling all the time about it. And at some point <clears throat> after a year or two, I asked him, so, Paul, it sounds like it sounds like having kids is actually a bad thing. You know, you, you, you seem to always be t talking about wh what a like, horrible experience you're having with kids. And he looks at me like, uh, sort of shocked and said, no, it's absolutely the best decision I've ever made in my life. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> How come I've never, ever heard you express your satisfaction with this decision? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, for me, anyway, it wasn't really a decision. We were gonna right. When, when really. that when that guy got your girlfriend pregnant, you were like, "I'm <laughs> I'm just gonna man up and, and take care." <laughs> no, I mean, I I'd actually even been married for what five years, four years before we had kids, which I think uh, actually is good advice. I, same same here. I was married for about yeah. five years before I had kids, and I I have just pretty much loved it at every stage. And continue to love it. And I guess the idea that you're causing them suffering is strange to me. It would You would have to have a very pessimistic view of the world that it's better not to have been born, that you actually experience more suffering than happiness. Because if you experience more happiness, then it seems I, – I, unless I'm misunderstanding that argument that he, he's quoting, I think, from a guy named Benatar. Pat. In relation to Pat <laughs> Benatar. But, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I mean, on the one hand, I think that that uh, given given a fairly decent upbringing or surroundings, that children are more likely to experience happiness. Like the calculus works out in favor of of happiness. Um, it's it's the true suffering happens when you're an adult. <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. My, my daughter is just wakes up and every day it's like it's a, you know just that's a, a great. great new adventure. Yeah. So excited! It's like the it's like Disney music is in the background and bir birds <laughs> are like making her dress and stuff. And it's <laughs> <laughs> it's no, that's right. 
and, and, and you know, you get a little bit of that from them, which is great. You know, that's a very it's a cliche, but you, you get to vicariously experience some of that just uncomplicated. No, happiness. it's total, totally true. And today, in fact, right after this, I'm taking my daughter to Disneyland with with my sister. And, uh, and I mean, it's been like two days of like countdown excitement, you know, once we decided that it was today and it's like every, like last night she's like, I'm excited that it's nighttime because, because it's closer to getting, you know, to going to Disneyland. And so I think from the perspective of the kids, it's, I, I, I don't at least have any reason to think that it's worse to, to be a kid than to not exist. Now, from the perspective I mean, of the parents, the apocalypse comes or something. Like <laughs> yeah, or if you're like a really shitty parent, you know, if you like <laughs> abuse your kids, well, I think then it's fairly obvious. Then you should, probably shouldn't. If you suspect right. that you will be a child abuser, then maybe it's it's the wrong thing to do. I think this is a great example of one of those things that philosophers need to not try to mount an argument for one way or the other because it's obviously going to be different depending on the situation and depending on the person and the idea that you know you're going to come up with one answer that applies you know here are the factors that you should con- even the factors that you should consider are pro- are going to be different depending on the person there's going to be some common factors right. there's going to be some common you know reasons uh for or against for people but it'll just depend on how what your relationship is with the person you're having children with and you know what kind of parent you think you're capable of being and the problem uh, the problem is it's so hard to predict that stuff but you know maybe one commonality though is at least if you're a decent parent uh, one one thing that i do notice is that if you know let's if we define rash rationality like the rationality of your decisions in in the very narrow way that economists like to define it which is self-interest then having children is absolutely the most irrational decision you could possibly make because all of a sudden somebody else's interest trumps your own and and it happens fairly quickly and it happens in a way that that does change your life that is all of a sudden it, the the decisions that i make are more for my daughter than for me but on a slightly broader conception of self-interest in which you're just trying to flourish or be happy i you know Certainly for me, and again, this might not, this probably isn't going to be true. I see parents who, who it really does seem like it's a daily trial. But for me, you know, even though, yes, you're right that their interests are first, and then that sort of ridiculous sense of rationality, overly restrictive sense of rationality would be irrational. It's very rational for me in the sense that my life is much better as a result of having the child and, and being able right. to have somebody whose interests count for more than mine. By a lot, right? So, in, in so in this sense, there there's a couple of well, there are a couple of strands of actual research that we can talk about that that um, that speak to this. One is is actually um, compiled in a in a recent book by by a couple of my colleagues and friends, um, Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton, who who write about how uh, you get more pleasure out of spending money on others than you do on spending spending money for yourself. And kids are that. I mean, kids are, are a source of joy because you're actually doing things for them. So it's not, it's not really, it sounds like such punishment to say that you, all of a sudden your self-interest gets trumped. But in reality, you, get, you derive so much happiness from making another human being happy, and more so when it's, I think, your child. But the other thing that, uh, that people always bring up are these, these happiness studies showing that happiness dips substantially when parents have kids. And so you do these like... These, like sometimes it's multiple kids. Yeah, that's true. It is multiple kids, but but so the data show this like very this very distinct pattern that happiness 
um, in terms of sort of subjective well-being uh, doesn't go back up until kids leave the, the home, until you get an empty nest. And I've always been very suspicious of these studies in part, and I can't offer like a complex methodological critique here because I don't know all the studies, but, but in part, if you had a beeper on me, like, so let's say you, you know, like, let's say Liza's is like, you know, four years old and you have a beeper and it's telling you to rate, you pull out your little iPhone or I, uh, or Palm pilot and you rate how happy you are in the moment. Sure. Chances are like I'm in the middle of cooking or helping or get being frazzled because I can't get my work done because kind of like this, go, this Paul like Bloom effect. Early stage where you have to go to a playground and <laughs> they can't just go off and play that you oh, play with. Exactly. So you're constantly, you're constant, your attention is constant. And so in that sense, it's like a Paul, the Paul Bloom effect where like my daily experiences are often just stressed and frazzled and, and frustrated. And so, so if you measure my overall happiness as simply the accretion of these data points, then maybe it seems like I'm miserable. But like upon reflection, I think to myself, this, this has brought more value to my life than anything else, right? Yeah. And I also think even just in the moment, phenomenologically, long stretches with your children of a kind of happiness and richness of experience that is different from when you don't have children. It's, they're both happy, but I don't know how well it can measure that kind of right it's like a different kind of, of pleasure happiness yeah. yeah it's a different kind of it's a it's kind of such a worthy pleasure too yeah it just feels good it's like when you're watching the wire right uh it's a worthy <laughs> it's really fun but it's you also feel good about yourself it's deeper yeah. it's deeper right. yeah and i and- like watching law and order <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding. it is nice i guess to, i mean i really enjoyed like i said every stage of her life I, I i do love the stage now where i'm not like rubbing shit off her <laughs> yeah that just feels like uh really like, we don't have people for this <laughs> but, uh, do you, you know, remember that first when they're first born they have that like merconium or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. tar like sticky thing and it's like impo- you have to like take a chisel to it to get it off uh, yeah it looks like a it looks like a, a it should be a valued mineral of some sort that you can like. <laughs> yeah no it looks like just like they they sat in hot tar and now <laughs> you have to take it off yeah well the, the the worst thing is when you realize actually how how small they can be when they start having like adult sized shits <laughs> And it's amazing. Oh, no, I know. You see some of them right now. (laughs) Jesus Christ. How is that even possible that that came out of such a sweet little girl? This is what philosophers Uh, don't talk about, my friend. This is this is these are the factors. (laughs) Uh, One last interesting sort of thing also is, you know, your biology plays tricks on you. And when Eliza was born and I was not someone who liked kids very much. I didn't like my friend's kids. I didn't want them to show me pictures of 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 their kids and stuff like that. I didn't think they were cute when they were three weeks old they look they look like winston know. churchill they all look yeah. like <laughs> the white but ones. i thought eliza was the most beautiful infant uh and it was just some this massive exception she was so beautiful and you know jen thought that too and it was just amazing and then what's funny is if you go back now and look at pictures oh totally you're just like well, whatever <laughs> All right. Well, she kind of just looks like most. <laughs> I know, and most babies look like old aliens or British lords. You know, yeah, it's like exactly. it really is true. Jowly <laughs> British lords. I know, and I'm like, how could I possibly take that many pictures? And all right, we'll be back with Eddie and Amis after the break. 
Welcome back. Now joining us is Eddie Namias, Associate Professor of Philosophy, right? Or do you have neuroscience or whatever uh, that other thing te- is in your Technically, title? I'm a professor of neuroscience, but my wife likes to make a lot of fun of that since I don't really know enough neuroscience to be a professor of neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> quick, quick, where's the amygdala? Point. <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere in the brain. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and you're really and you hate all neuroscience research too, right? Not at all. Uh, I believe Eddie's official position is that neuroscience proves that we do in fact have free will. <laughs> right. <laughs> the anti-Jerry coin. It constitutes positive evidence for freedom. I believe there's something about quantum stuff in there. Not at all. I mean, <laughs> quantum, quantum brain stuff is uh, not what? not where it's at. <laughs> Do you believe that we have free won't? Who said that? Was that uh, that's, that's was that Libet? Yeah, that's yeah. Benjamin Libet, which uh, and he was a dualist, so he thought it was like your soul coming in and zapping the brain. Right. I mean, like like is just he, veto is power, he, right? Yeah, yeah. Is is he dead? He is. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, well, now that he's a ghost, he has ultimate freedom. Uh, he's not constrained by the exactly. uh, synapses by the body <laughs> by, our slow, by our slow synapses. That, that react so slowly to our volition. So, uh, we, yeah, we brought Eddie primarily because I believe it was in the last episode, or no, two episodes ago with Josh Nob that you insulted him deeply. No, and, you uh, insulted him deeply. I defended no, 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 him. No, 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 no. I said that you were Fredo, and as a way to deflect, as a way to, to, to play off the deep embarrassment from my zinger, you, you just tossed it onto Eddie. I uh, think it's fair to say that both of you tried to use... Bad humor to hurt me, but I'll be all right. You're too strong. You can't be hurt. Yeah. Eddie is our, our our second public intellectual in a row that we've had on the show. Jesse Baring from the last episode, and now Eddie. Um, Eddie has written for the New York Times. What else? That's that's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, he, he he's like a staff. He's a staff writer. Any public intellectual status yet? <laughs> but but you just got a nice write up of some of your work, new work on increasing the proportion of women in philosophy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, the first thing is uh, I am I am sort of the backseat driver on this one. My uh, our, our graduate students here, Tony Adelberg and Morgan Thompson, took the lead on this, uh, and we we have gotten some press recently from an NPR blog and and uh, whatever it's called, Inside Higher Education. That's it. There's been a ton of discussion about women leaving philosophy when they're grad students or maybe not even going into grad school, and then t- all the problems that occur for women once they're professors, all of which are totally you know legitimate and out there and need to be addressed. But the data shows. No, they that, just need to understand irony a little better. Oh, uh, okay. yeah. I knew you were going to try and bring in Cullen McGinn somehow. Yeah, but, yeah. but getting back to what we did, uh, we, we, uh, we, saw that the, or we saw this data from Molly Paxton and Valerie Tiberius and Carrie Figdor that showed that the drop actually occurs at, before they become majors. So across the country, and this is true at Georgia State too, only about a third or less of philosophy majors are women. So you're never going to correct for the underrepresentation of women at later stages unless you correct for that problem. So we started, uh, Tony and, and Morgan and I created a climate survey, which we did on 700 intro students here at Georgia State. 
And we found that there were a lot of differences between the way women and men were perceiving the class. So by climate, just just uh, to clarify for people like me who, when I first uh, saw the title, uh, you don't mean weather. You don't mean the weather. Women you know? like it a little cooler <laughs> in the classroom than women. Yeah, so that explains it. Yeah. Uh, no, it was, it was about what, what they thought about the class, whether they thought there were a fair proportion of women on the syllabi, whether they felt like they had a lot in common with the instructor and the other students, whether they felt comfortable asking questions. That sort of thing. And so let me take a step back. What What is actually the proportion of, of women in sort of, at, let's say, at the graduate student or assistant professor stage? I mean, so, so it's it's like compared to the other humanities, it's it's a shame. But compared to some like physics and engineering, it's, it's compared so, to like um, football team. It's it's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's much better than uh, <laughs> the NFL. It's uh, it's the only the only majors. And, or the only disciplines that are worse than philosophy in terms of the proportion of women are physics and math. And then engineering and economics comes in there somewhere. Among the humanities, there's nothing even close. A lot of them have more than 50% women at the grad student level now. And, and your hypothesis that you are testing <clears throat> is what? Well, the one that's been getting a lot of discussion is in the fall, we're going to try – Tim O'Keefe is our grad instructor, and he, he had the idea of let's just add more women to the syllabi and see what happens. And so we can't force tenured professors to do anything, uh, but we can force our grad students to add women to the, women to the syllabus. So we're, we're, having a, we're having the grad students have at least 20 percent female authors on their syllabi. Hopefully some will do more, and so we'll have like a spread, a range from 0 percent for some of those professors – uh, to to twenty percent to maybe forty percent, and then we can tell, or we can look at the way people respond to the climate survey to see whether it has any effect on making women more likely to say they'll take more philosophy classes or consider majoring in philosophy. So you don't have any data yet on this issue. No, the only data we have so far is there was there there was something that suggested that women definitely say there were there were. They, they respond to the question, there's a fair proportion of women on the syllabi. They disagree with that more than men. And that, that response has a mediation effect on whether they say they'll take more philosophy. And then you also have these professors who say they're going to jerk off to their thoughts of you. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's not that, – that can't help, right? And, and uh, Eddie has – when he's not trying to repair the gender disparities in philosophy – he is trying to convince the world that you can have free will even in a deterministic world. And the reason that people think we can't is because they are confusing what determinism means. Can you tell us a little bit about that research? Yeah. So, you know, I began about 10 years ago with Thomas Nadelhofer and Jason Turner and Steve Morris just doing sort of the standard X-Fi thing at the beginning of X-Fi where you say, okay, let's take some philosophical thought experiment, give it to ordinary people and see what they say and see if what they say lines up with what all the famous philosophers say that they'll say, um, which in the free will literature they did a lot of, typically saying, of course, ordinary people find determinism to be a threat. So we just gave them various descriptions of determinism and asked them whether or not agents could be free and it looked like the majority of people were saying yeah you could they could be free they could have free will they could have moral responsibility they could be blamed 
even in these deterministic universes. Then along comes uh, Josh Nob and Sean Nichols. Wh- which of the Godfather characters is Josh? I forget. He's Michael uh, Corleone. Okay. So, so, Corle- so Corleone comes along and, and, uh, and finds that – or they, they run a description of determinism under which it looks like most people say you can't have free will uh, in that universe. Um, right. And actually we talked about those particular cases yeah. at length and t- where Tamler tries to rip Josh a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would. I mean, he would. He would be happy to. Josh mad. He'd be happy to say, "I I did the same wrong thing." Which is why the hell do you right. want to ask people whether they have this broad intuition? And you know, we can talk about that if you want. But let me get to the bypassing thing. So basically, with Dylan Murray, a student of mine here at Georgia State, he's at Berkeley now. We ran my old scenarios of determinism, and then Josh and Sean's scenario. But we also included questions that we call bypassing questions, which were basically, you know, in this universe, do people's decisions have any effect on what they do or do their desires have any effect on what they do? Yeah, actually flesh out that, that notion of bypassing right. a little bit more. So, I think it's- well, there's, so there's two different ways you might get the bypassing worry. So first of all, the, the general worry of bypassing is that whatever people associate with their selves, with their conscious mental being with their free will, whatever that, Mm -hmm. that if that gets bypassed, if they think that that doesn't play a role in their actions, then of course they're going to think they don't have free will. And it looks like from our studies, there's two kinds of ways you can get people to have that bypassing worry. One is certain descriptions of determinism make people think the past is pushing me and I'm getting bypassed. I'm not playing a role in what i do by i you mean your desires your yeah. intentions, my mental your... my my thoughts my you know my deliberations the sort of right. things compatibilists of course focus on to say that's what you need for free will you need the ability to deliberate you need the ability to consciously conceive of which decision you might make and how those decisions may influence the future etc and the other way you get bypassing to if you give people a reductionistic description, right? You say it's all the brain doing it, and therefore people might think that it's not their conscious selves. And but what's crucial is the incompatibilists who think determinism takes away free will. They don't think determinism means bypassing. They don't think right. that just because everything's caused, mental states don't play a causal role. So right. it's a mistake to think that determinism entails bypassing. I also think it's a mistake to think that physicalism about the mind and the brain entails bypassing. We can talk about that later. But the point is, ordinary people, when we ask them these questions, so first of all, the majority still said determinism is not a threat. But those who did say determinism is a threat also seem to think determinism meant bypassing. So we think that's an error theory for incompatibilist intuitions. It explains away why people are mistaking determinism as a threat. So let me – to get it clear, it's that, it's that the layperson understands when you bring up sort of neuroscientific explanations of, of the mind. They, they never add that layer of, of intention and desire. Are they, yeah. du- are they implicit dualists? No, no, so- no, no. No. <laughs> Wait. 
Can you say that again? No. I'm saying that so many <laughs> so, times yes. because you've had you've had two prior guests on your show, Paul Bloom and Josh No, both of who are pretty convinced that ordinary people are duelists. And I yeah. I just don't think that's right. And so I can tell you why real quick. I mean, it, dualism is a theory. It's a theory about what the mind is. It's the it's a theory that says my mind is some non-physical substance that or property that can somehow interact with my brain and make things happen. I don't think ordinary people have that theory. Some religious people well, might kind of buy into it because of their religion. But well, let's no. But to be fair, Paul Bloom. When Paul Bloom says that ordinary people are dualists, he means in a very pre-theoretical way. He means that that sort of infants are already are already kind of explaining the world in terms of mind stuff, spirit stuff, and, that's, and physical stuff. That's absolutely right. But explaining the world in terms of mental concepts or even categories doesn't mean that you think that those concepts and categories or the, the, the properties that you're referring to are – Aren't also physical. Right. Aren't somehow embedded in a physical world, or well, so so, but the then, but world. simply, what Paul simply means is that that there there is mind stuff and there is there is physical stuff. Yeah, I, but that's that's different. That's oh no no, that's the sense in which he's using the word dualism. Like I grant you that he's not you know it's he's not offering some sort of like he doesn't think that infants are Cartesians. Right, obviously, at most they read the than, than think, they probably have right, any more than we think. That, yeah, they, <laughs> any more than we think. We think that that lay deontologists are Kantians. I hear you, but right. but if you say that infants believe in mind stuff, then you're sounding like they're Cartesians. Rather, I think it's more appropriate to say even infants understand that things that have minds behave differently than things that don't. Doesn't they mean they have a soul. It just means they have something that has the powers that we ascribe to mental states, like desires or beliefs. Why doesn't your own uh, research undermine this? Because every time you get a mechanistic explanation for something, people automatically assumes, "Oh, my mental states are being bypassed." That's, doesn't that right. seem to good. go so, against your theory? Yeah, good. So I've, exactly. I've got these studies that I did. Good point, Tamler. <laughs> Thanks, man. I've got these studies <laughs> I did with uh, Trevor Kavarin. Got your back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got these studies I did with Trevor Kavarn and uh, Justin Coates, and, uh, and, it, and it's true that we found that if you give people a description of determinism that says everything is completely caused by neuronal states or chemical and, and physical states, that they're much more likely to say we don't have free will than if you give the same determinism but you talk about beliefs and desires. I think what's going on there is if you say – everything is completely caused in terms of brain states, the natural implication is there's nothing left over for mental stuff, for mental states to do. So you're kind of, you're, you're giving them a, an exclusion, an exclusion problem, uh, uh, something that, you know, pushes out the mentalistic explanations. Okay. So, so people think it's overdetermined. They, they, the people will not they, automatically they don't like do reject overdetermination. Exactly. They don't like overdetermination. I see. But, and that's not the same as dualism? No. Implicit dualism? I don't think so. Because, Be- I mean, look, here's what I, think, here's what I think is true. Nobody, not the philosophers, not the neuroscientists, and certainly not the folk, have a clue how the brain 
gives rise to conscious mental states or is conscious mental states or is the basis of conscious mental states. Nobody has a theory. I, I do. I do. I just don't want to yeah, tell anyone. Well, yeah, I have. We all <laughs> Actually, have our no. own pet <laughs> theories, but. Wait, isn't it sort of, I, f- I feel like I read a philosopher who once said it's like digestion for the stomach. Yeah, John I, that's what I said. <laughs> right. I mean, so seriously, we don't have a theory. So imagine, you know, you're being told Here's what we do know. We do know that the brain causes everything, that all of your behavior is completely caused by brain states. At the same time, we're not told, but some of those brain states are your conscious thoughts. It's very – I think it's very easy for even sophisticated neuroscientists to conclude, oh, well, I guess we're showing that conscious mental states don't play a role. Whereas I think we got to flip that on its head and say once we figure out – how the brain, how some brain states are conscious mental states will thereby show how conscious mental states cause some of our behavior. Yeah, but – all right. So would you say – is it fair to say that people are at least implicitly non-reductionists yes. about mental yes. states? Okay. Yes. I think that is fair and, and it's fair because it's true. We're not going to get an explanation of all of our behavior in neuroscientific terms that does the work that, that <laughs> I, psychological you're work. such an optimist do you think that people believe things because they are independently true you're yeah. a mysterian <laughs> <laughs> i am not a mysterian you know what I'm, happens when you're a mysterian right <laughs> <laughs> you think that's the only thing i jerked off in here i've been dropping loads around this fucking house like a goddamn dump truck no in <laughs> fact in fact it's the it's the stupid mysterian view that that drives people to this to this sort of view that if the, if we explain things in terms of the brain, we're somehow leaving out consciousness. But it is an interesting finding that that you show people, you know, a picture of an you know fMRI activation, and and they tend to assume things about about free will. Like I, I get that you you what I don't. I guess the step that I disagree with you about is simply that I think it's very, very easy for people to naively take that step with minimal information. So I think that's a finding that when you point out brain stuff, yeah. people kind of go to the, the well, maybe maybe it's not under our control. And so I I also believe you that we can explain compatibilism, but I just think you're telling your subjects, you're teaching, right? You're just telling them, hey, here's a way in which in which compatibilism actually is true that goes against your, your knee-jerk reaction to these pictures of the brain. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, in the sense that we get these results without having to teach them anything. Now, it might just be because they're yeah. so how attached are you, to... How are they teaching them, Dave? I didn't get that. By, by explaining to them that brain states cause mental states and that mental states actually... By, by pumping the intuition that mental states are actually oh, uh, the kind of thing that's giving rise to action. So, so because people don't normally... When you show them a picture of the brain, yeah. their first thought isn't, oh, this is what's causing my intentions and my desires. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, at least in the younger generation. I think we're, there, there's this great quote Paul Bloom gave a while ago about how when you have some new New York... New York Times story about, you know, this part of the brain is active when people are having sex and this part of the brain is active when they're doing math. You know, philosophers and neuroscientists are like, oh, it's that part of the brain. 
you know, because of course we knew it was some part of the brain, but he, th- right, he said right, ordinary right. people say, you mean the brain does that too? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. And, and, you know, I think there's some truth to that, but I don't think it's very true anymore of younger people. I think now people just assume, yeah, the brain does everything. So can I describe my new studies, Tamler? Uh, yeah, yeah, but let me just yeah. say one last thing to Dave. <laughs> yes, I want to no. figure this out before we leave this subject. <laughs> yeah. Dave, even if you're right that he's training them to understand that, you know, the brain state has some sort of relation to mental states um, and that mental states are involved, wouldn't it still show that people are intuitively compatibilists if they're still not bothered by all of that being determined? So by their mental states themselves being determined, which Eddie does make clear in, in the scenarios. And that's his goal, right? To show that people are intuitively compatibilist. And when they seem like they're being intuitively incompatibilist, it's only because they're not understanding. They're making a, 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 an empirical mistake in thinking that if the brain causes something, then you couldn't have caused something. So maybe Eddie has, has data about this and, and I'll let him get to it. But my, my hunch is that when you describe brain states, people are like, oh, no, it's all, you know, atoms, you know, matter in motion that caused me to do this. And, and then it's not you your them, deliberations. And, your and it's not your deliberation. And then when you introduce this concept of intentions and desires, then they're like, oh, OK, yeah, I understand it, that. That makes sense. And I'm not a determinist. Not, but, but hold on. But but I think that if you were to take the, say, the, the literature and social psychology on priming and show them that, in fact, the reason that they wanted this was because of the order in which you presented it. Not because of their because they formulated their desire out of their own volition, then that sort of thing would just bring intentions but and desires into this mechanistic account, right? Isn't that in, right. that, in those well, kinds I think of cases that, you are li- really legitimately getting bypassed? Well, I don't know, but I think that would that would that gives them a concrete example of how intentions and desires themselves are truly deterministic, and that would that would well, raise them to, to sort of well, be two, threatened by two that. Two quick account. things. I mean, one is as as you may know from some of my other work, I mean, I do think there's a legitimate threat to free will from the, you know, literature and social psychology and, and psychology in general that shows that we can actually be bypassed. That is, the, yeah. the mental states that we want to be controlling our actions aren't in some cases or not as much as we think they are. Well, why is that bypassing any more than a deterministic I- oh, intention? Totally, because... What are the other causes of intentions that wouldn't constitute bypass? The ones that go through my conscious deliberations and what I want to be influencing me. Here's what I don't want to be true. I don't want my deliberations about whether or not to get married or what job to take or you know whether or not to give money to someone. I don't want those mental states to play no causal role in what I do. I don't care if those mental states are caused by earlier things. As a compatibilist, I can't care about that. So that's not bypassing if it goes through me. But I think that you've misunderstood the social psychology studies where – I present you a set of a, a set of objects in a particular right. order. No, I don't misunderstand. I, it's not that it's, but it's, but it's not as if I'm not deliberating about my. So I no. think no, I really like that. No, I understand. So, but the worry there is, it looks like I'm being influenced by factors that I wouldn't accept as legitimate. Right. Right. So let's say I, Eddie. I want, right, but so is your deliberation to get married. I, all all no, it's no, doing no. is inserting the cause. It's inserting an obvious cause. Right, let's make well, it look, specific. If you're deliberating about getting let's married specific, to this particular David. woman, if I if yeah, I'm caused to to want to get married, 
primarily because my wife's name begins with the same letter as my name, then that's bullshit. That's not a good reason to get married. And I would find that. A so threat. what about what about if what about if you are cause if, if your deliberation about getting married is caused because uh, there are features of your soon to be wife that remind you of your mother? It depends. And actually, you had a great relationship with your mother, but you have yeah. you don't know that that was the causal history of your intentions and desires. Then, it, then, if it's something that I find shouldn't, if I if on reflection and if I knew about that cause, I would reject it as legitimate. Then, to that extent, I'm being caused by forces that I that are beyond my control and that I don't accept. So bypassing, so then bypassing means something else now, that that uh, that we haven't been talking about, which is. Which is the determining of your intentions and desires by uh, by a force that you reject by a right, yes, whereas, by a force that I you thought, don't think. Let me should just specify be. that's but that's that's, a that's very, not what oh, bypass. Oh, 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 that's a very specific type of bypassing that I find to be a threat to free will. And so what if I like Nutella because when I was five there was a commercial with a cute girl and and that's right. why I like Nutella right now. See, like I, is that really that different? I, mean, I think that's legitimate I, reason to. It doesn't matter because you like Nutella. It doesn't matter whether – you don't need legitimate reasons for why you find something good. So it really is. I think that's a good point, Dave, that it's about whatever is causing you to do this, you consider to be a legitimate influence on your decision. Or to put it in in standard terms in the debate, it's it's a sort of causal process that you identify yourself with, that you – take to be part right, of yourself. That's what I was getting at. That's this is a this this is just collapsing down to some sort of hierarchical view of the that will, right. which is actually a very different explanation than the bypassing one because I understood the bypassing one to say your your actions are sort of determined by something that has that there is no causal chain that includes intentions, desires and all of that. And it's a very different explanation to say cuz like sometimes there's a, a cause at time one that gives rise to my intentions and desires. And you're saying what matters is that the cause at time one that gives rise to my intentions and desires be one and that I embrace. So just to be – And I actually think – Just yeah. to be clear, the, the general bypassing story is just one way to explain why ordinary people uh, find determinism threatening even though they shouldn't and why scientists find a physicalist explanation of the mind threatening even though they shouldn't. The more specific okay. bypassing story we're telling now about not being caused by influences that you would accept or that you identify with, that's a much more specific threat that I take to be threatening to even a compatibilist account that doesn't entail general bypassing. So your mental states aren't bypassed, but some of them are. The mental states that you care about may be bypassed, and that would be a threat. That would be a legitimate threat to free will. I guess what I'm saying then is that that I don't think that it's the bypassing that's threatening. I think it's the actual causal chain that's threatening. And by my evidence is that people don't like their intentions to be caused by something that they didn't know about. I disagree. Like the order of presentation. I disagree. Right. I so if think... you give people the order of presentation studies, you don't think that they're going to be threatened? Yes, but I think they're going to be threatened because they're being influenced by something they think is not a, le- not a good way to be influenced. That's so. What, that's what I'm saying. It's not no, a but bypass. What you said it's not was the bypassing is threatening. I, yeah. I don't mind being influenced mind by be- stuff I don't know about right. if it turns out that that thing I think exactly. is legitimate. Right? That happens but all that's, the time. But that's a threat. That's a threat to free will that does not include the bypass. I agree. Right. Right. Okay. It's, I, mean, it's, I, right. I like. I, I, I don't find it. I don't know why I love German chocolate cake. 
Right. Uh, but you did. But I don't, right? <laughs> You're a self-hating Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's... <laughs> right, I mean, there probably could be some sort of explanation that I would find troubling right. as to why like I like one. German chocolate cake. Like, like that one, yeah. But I mean, just, <laughs> just to give another example, I mean, and I think it depends on which... Uh, sort of area you're thinking about when it comes to chocolate cake or or even why I find certain women attractive or why I love my wife to some extent it might not matter that much what the particular influences are but why I am a democrat again it's probably mostly because of my parents but I hope that it also has something to do with my thoughts about what's right and wrong the influences that go through my reasoning process. And if they don't, then that's trouble. I think it's more of a general conformity to your surroundings. Maybe, yeah. I've actually been pri- I've been priming you with all kinds of things <laughs> for like five years. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's take a break. Let's take a quick break. Come back. We'll talk more with Eddie Nomis. We're here with Eddie Namias. We've been talking about his work on free will, moral responsibility, and bypassing. I have a question for you, Eddie, because you, like me, believe that it's. Oh, oh, I thought I thought you were saying that you like him. I was like, well, yeah. I was like, wait. You kind of think I'm hot. You think I have a nice ass. And he's a fan of your haircut, actually. Why didn't nobody else think I have a nice ass? Yeah. No, my question is, you, comma, like me, comma, comma, believe that it's a big mistake for the whole free will community to be obsessed with the, question, the compatibility question, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that determinism, it's, it's, it's sort of a strange sociological... Wait, really? But, but isn't it... Is, aren't you trying to show that people are compatibilists, which is just another version of... No. That's my question. Aren't you just contributing to the problem... By you take this issue, is determinism compatible with free will and moral responsibility, which is, is not of, uh, at the forefront of people's thinking or intuitions when they think about moral responsibility and free will. They're not really thinking about determinism. I mean, that's part of your point. They don't yeah. consider that like a huge threat. So this is a problem that has been largely obsessed about and maybe even invented by philosophers. You get people's intuitions about something they really – that isn't at the forefront of their mind 
and then you show that those intuitions might have an error theory or whatever it is that you're trying, you know, there might be some sort of explanation for why people have those kinds of intuitions. But isn't that just playing along into no. this game that you've been trying no. to go beyond? Uh, Taylor, why? Imagine, imagine that somehow, miraculously, by the end of my life, I've made philosophers stop caring about determinism. Imagine what? that I succeeded at that. That would be that would be a, a worthwhile endeavor. But, now, but, I mean, but isn't it be better fair. to actually ki- explore yes. the let issues me, that are actually yes. important? So you let, only have one life. So right. issues that are actually important so, about free so will. So here's what's actually important about free will: figuring yeah. out what the scientific story is for how we come to act, and whether or not that scientific story conflicts with what we think is required to be free and responsible. We're only going to get, we're only going to get people to care. Well, I mean, so to shift attention to that problem, I think requires showing two things. One, that determinism is irrelevant. Why does it require that? Well, that's, I guess my question. I mean, because maybe I can succeed at getting philosophers to take all of their intellectual skills and apply them to more interesting problems. But more importantly, maybe I can. So your get... project is to to convert philosophers. No, it's not because I won't succeed at that. My my right, project exactly. My project, you know, is to get more attention focused on the issues that I think are really relevant, and those have to do with how we understand the mind body relationship, how we understand mental causation, how what what psychology tells us about the causes of our action, the neural correlates of deliberation, how we're able to act in ways that at least seem like they're based on our own deliberations, why we have the reactive feelings we have towards people that are blameworthy, or at least we believe to be blameworthy. All of that is more important, but I do think that to get us to pay attention to those things, we have to understand that people are mistaking determinism for some of these other issues. But I mean, by people, you mean philosophers? And scientists and ordinary people. Look, the scientists talk about determinism all the time. They think, the scientists say, obviously determinism rules out free will. What they mean by determinism is just a causal explanation for human action. No, that's true. But isn't your task then just a traditional task of arguing for compatibilism and hoping everybody believes you? I hope not. I I, I don't know what... What's so iconoclastic about about like you're not rejecting philosophy as 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 it's been done. You're not saying that we're doing it wrong. Uh, you're just saying like, look, there's just this more subtle view. I think people kind of get it. I, I right? mean, I think I think ultimately what I'd like to get the point I'd like to get to is using some really impressive work by compatibilists like Frankfurt and Susan Wolf and. John Fisher and and other you know compatibilists who have developed really nice theories of what it would take to be free and responsible, and embedding it within what we learn from neuroscience and psychology, and figuring out how right. we actually have those capacities to the extent we do, and when we don't have them, why we don't have them, and in the legal I, in the legal context, yeah. trying to figure out when criminals. You know, have these capacities diminished or aren't able to exercise them? I mean, so hopefully there'll be a real practical upshot of all this. That's why I'm interested in neuroethics and neurolaw. I'm actually really, really, really fascinated by the by 
how you and I guess maybe Tamler assume that the neuroscience in any way informs this debate. That I just don't get it. What, so well, I mean, I get why why psychologists might think so, but like, isn't it just? Isn't it a completely separate task? Like, isn't it obvious that the brain causes everything? Sure. Where, What's it going to add to the free will? Well, thing? I mean, a couple of things. First of all, as hopefully we'll get to, I want to do some debunking of the people who think neuroscience is somehow showing we don't have free will, right? So, again, that's just sort of so your whole yeah, but that's career. Not, but that wouldn't be neuroscience, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? That's just a negative task. But right. on the positive side, yeah. But wait, more importantly, neuroscientific data cannot be used in that debunking. That yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It matters right. little Absolutely. whether it was the amygdala or the prefrontal right. cortex, right? right? Like, yeah. Is so, there a positive... I guess the, que- so the, the positive, question is, yeah. is there a positive role for neuroscience to play? Yeah, and I think the positive role is, you know, as we get better at sort of understanding how to mesh psychological theories and neuroscientific theories, there will be a role for understanding how the brain instantiates free will, how... The capacities for, say, prospection, which is the ability to consider various future alternatives and make choices based on conditionals. If I do this, that'll happen. If I do but this, we, that'll but happen. But we have th- we have that in hold psychology. On. Hold on, we 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 all, but we already know that that is a, a faculty that human beings possess. Yeah, but we don't know how they possess it. We don't know what sure sure we, we don't right, know sure. what so for a neuroscientist that's an interest yeah for a neuroscientist that's a very interesting question yeah but how does that contribute well, no, to the uh, to the philosophical what about this dave today? so or would you agree that neuroscientific evidence in the future might be able to tell us whether certain processes that we think are crucial for free will have been bypassed or not bypassed right. in a particular kind of decision. Well, I actually don't think that neuroscientific levels of explanation do a very good job. I don't that. either. I think yeah. that psychological levels but do what a if, good job. But, uh, but it's at least conceivable that it might as the science but, gets better. But I, I'm actually not sure that it's conceivable, and that's kind of what I'm asking you guys. But because David, come on. I can you understand. just said that the brain – we all agree the brain causes everything. There's neural processes underlying Of course, but we all agree – but we also we also agree that quantum level phenomena cause the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not sh- you, surely, surely you think that we're going to be able to get to the level of analysis where we can say, look, this person really doesn't have these capacities – to the same extent that Tamler, well, forget Tamler, the same extent so, that I, David does, because, <laughs> and we can look at his, and we can look at his brain and, and get some information about that. I so I'm not sh- I'm not sure. So that's what I'm looking okay. to you for a, a positive explanation because I, I actually think so. I mean, are you talking about like these tumor cases? No, that's, like that kind of that kind of evidence. Well, that's so met. I mean, that's so uh, non fine grained, coarse grained. I guess is the word. Right. I mean, so, but there'll be, but presumably there'll be much more fine grained mechanistic explanations for some of the capacities we're looking at. Like, why did Eddie cheat on Cheryl? What, like, right. you would have, uh, you know, you do a brain scan. If she had some brain evidence that the reason he did, you know, indicated that his, I don't know, deliberations had been bypassed or that he, uh, I mean, but, how but would couldn't it work you exactly? get? Are you, like, are you, you arrive to get at that me in imp- trouble? You know, Cheryl's going to listen I'm to this. Definitely trying to. Get <laughs> <you in trouble. laughs> I, I, I just, I, I mean, to the extent that neuroscience can give us measures of psychological states, like whether or not you really intended something, 
then okay. But that's actually not adding anything except for like uh, one measurement, right? Like we, the only reason that this is, this is interesting to the question of the psychology is because maybe, maybe it's, it's going to add a, 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 a different, more sort of refined measurement of psychological states, sure. which we're far away from. But for this, for the, question of free will it just it just confuses well, I mean, me i mean you would agree you that are... like social psych studies could tell us right like yeah, like, yeah, like situationist yeah. things if you find For... out that uh you know the power of of the situation uh caused okay people let me pick up yeah, that yeah because look for right, sure for sure if you agree with yeah. that then you should also agree that at least in principle we could do something that the social psychologists typically can't, which is to look at this particular subject in this particular situation and Replicate see whether or data. not and see whether or not that subject is being influenced by the group effect or the bystander effect or you know whatever effect you're talking about. Did that? Did their brain state? Give us information that suggests that this effect influenced them or not. So you think you think that you think that it's just a better measure at the individual level? Uh, not right now. It could be. Not right now. It could but be. that it that yeah. it could be. But it, you know, in in that sense, I agree with you that like to, the more refined idiosyncratic measures we have, the better we'll do. But I, there's nothing in particular about about neuroscience Good. that's that's privileged Good. here. I agree entirely. There is nothing not, not about neuro, no there's nothing about neuroscience that's going to contribute to solving the free will debate if that's what you're looking for. And it, in fact it's well, quite the well, opposite. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I've been well, asking. No 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 what you were at, you why said is that, that such a in weird principle conclusion? Dave you said in principle neuroscience can't tell us anything about free will and moral yeah, responsibility and that's what and we that's were disagreeing the, with. That's it's, what we were disagreeing it's with. Only, you about. It's it only a few it's only a few neuroscientists what? and popularizers of neuroscience that think that neuroscience is going to free is going to solve the free will debate and here's why they think it's going to solve it they think it's going to prove that everything we do is caused by the brain and they think that that yeah which is a weird step because right. it's like that's what we assume is exactly we're, we're, so that's a that's a good segue into into this study so sam harris yeah. the popularizer of neuroscience wrote this little pamphlet can you leave the segues to us by yeah. the way yeah go ahead <laughs> tell us about that and, study and you did okay. that cast out on sam harris okay yeah I will. <laughs> nice nice transition tamla so yeah, thank you. uh so sam harris wrote this little pamphlet called free will it's like, a, you know, 100 pages it's like a tr- with 10 words it's per It's so page. dismissive to call it a pamphlet. He got, <laughs> like a tract. It's like a religious tract. Well, and then he knocked on then, everyone's then door. He, no, they say like out of an airplane just like dropped over a population. Look, so he writes this book. Sam Harris is my and, friend. And I mean he's a great writer and, he's, and he presents – he actually presents a famous argument that is Galen Strawson's argument for no free will pretty clearly and suggest that that's one way to show we don't have free will. But he also piles on all this stuff about how neuroscience is showing we don't have free will. And this is one way he does it. He says, look, here's how you would get people to see that they don't have free will. You would show them that in the future, we're going to be able to do brain scans on people and get information about what's happening in their brain just before they're consciously aware of making a decision and it'll predict with 100% accuracy what they're going to do or what they're going to decide. And once they see that their behavior is governed by what happens in their brain in this way, they'll realize we don't have free will. Right. He says this is- he makes that as just sort of a prediction about what's obviously true about how ordinary people will understand the situation. 
and others like Jerry Coyne and 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 know, Josh Green makes that Josh same Green claim. Makes like the black box in the head is going to be right. 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 So yeah. with with two of my students, uh, Jason Shepard and Shane Reuter, we took that scenario he wrote and just fleshed it out a little bit. Said. Um, I mean, I could read it to you, but basically it says, already brain scans are able to predict simple decisions just before people are consciously aware of making them. Imagine in the future the technology gets perfected to the point where we can predict people's decisions and actions with 100% accuracy based on their brain activity before they're consciously aware of making their decisions. Imagine Jill wears this brain scanner for a month. It's a lightweight cap. And the neuroscientists are able to predict everything she thinks and does before she's aware of doing it. It works perfectly. She tries to trick it sometimes by changing her mind at the last second, but of course they predict that too. They predict who she's going to vote for in two elections with 100% accuracy, and we end by saying, you know, to try and make it clear that this is sort of a physicalist scenario, we say these experiments confirm that all human mental activity is entirely based on brain activity. Okay, so great. Now, one thing is important here. We have not given the sort of reductionistic explanation that people get upset about. It's not reductionistic, but it's definitely not dualistic. It's what I call theory light. It's just your brain, you know, is responsible for everything. And if we knew enough about your brain, we'd know what you were thinking. But that doesn't mean that you're not thinking it. That doesn't mean right. that your deliberations don't play a role in what you do. They do, but they do it through your brain. Right. Or at least it, does, it doesn't it entail, doesn't entail that, that, whether or not people assume Exactly, that. and we're yeah. going to test a little more clearly on whether or not people are bringing dualist assumptions into it, even though we're trying to tell them not to. The, but here's the upshot. Jared Coyne and Sam Harris's predictions are just dead wrong. 80% of people say Jill has free will when she makes these decisions. 80% of people say this technology is possible. The 20% who say it's not possible don't do it because they very few talk about there being souls or there being free will that this machine could never predict. They do it because they say, like, the government would never let that happen. Or, or they say what I would say if you asked if I thought it was possible. There's no way neuroscience would be able to do that. I mean, there's no scanner that's going to give you that kind of information. The upshot is everybody thinks that – most people think this is possible and they don't think – that this possibility rules out free will. So it's like a it's a modern version of the old foreknowledge problem, God exactly. having knowledge but of But based on brain that- activity. So it's not even based on God reading your mind. I mean, it's based on neuroscientists right. reading your brain. Is there are there any other conditions like yeah. in, so in this condition yeah. Do you do you introduce one in which she does something wrong? No, for instance? no. So so far we don't have any that vary the moral nature of her action. I suspect you'd only get higher ratings if it were a bad action, just like we've seen in other studies. Um, the only thing we do in this yeah. is we we have a variation where they're also able to manipulate her brain activity, and in oh, some okay. in one of her voting decisions they do, and in one of her voting decisions they don't. And unsurprisingly, when you ask whether she votes of her own free will uh, or whether she's responsible for her vote in the manipulation case, it goes down to, you know, 20 percent saying yes or less. So that's important because if nothing else, it shows that it's not that people will say someone has free will no matter what. They won't say it if you get manipulated. Right. So I actually think it would be interesting to toss in 
a praiseworthy act and a blameworthy act and actually see because most people only get confronted with the decision about freedom when they're faced with some sort of moral yeah. decision like that yeah. right so you know going about your daily life there's nothing there's nothing earth-shattering about being able to predict my banal decisions yeah. but if you can predict if i can predict that that tamler in fact was going to cheat on his right. wife like he did that night in costa That's- rica when she was asleep <laughs> Um, then, then, then I'd start getting. It's okay. She never afraid. listens. So that's uh, <laughs> it's totally fine. Yeah, David. Lo- David, that's really that's really good because yeah. my wife Cheryl and I were just in Italy and we were talking. I, uh, this paper just got to revise and resubmit, so I I have awesome. to do a new study. And I was thinking of doing one with a moral behavior, uh, like, uh-huh. but. If you have a good suggestion, I'd, I'd like to hear it. I mean, whether Jill's trying to yeah, decide not, whether or not to steal a wallet from that someone left, or yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm sort of of two minds of what would happen in the in the blame condition right. because on the one hand, I agree with you that right. that if it was bad enough, people would be like, well, I don't care, right. and like she's, she's just blameworthy. Blame. But if right. it were something minor, it, like she's trying to decide whether to steal keep this wallet she found, people might be like, yeah. wow, if they can predict that then she's not really in right. control. Um, right. And then the other one... And, and in the praiseworthy dimension, people might be like, well, yeah. you know. Yeah. And like, and here's the, other the one problem, would... though, maybe, uh, Eddie, is that if they have any sort of Robert kane like view, where once you've acquired ultimate responsibility for right. your character, right. then anything that even deterministically stems from yep. your character is is something that you can be morally responsible for. So even in the wallet case or the cheating the, on your wife yeah, case, yeah. even if that part was predictive, you have to make it clear that every aspect, everything in her life that would form her character right. was was something that was predicted in advance. Because well, otherwise, predict- you don't... But I, I, think just that, be, I think that should follow from Can the, it but the, just be the, that the it's brain. predictable in theory, given the possibility of this brain scanner? Do I have to say I, she I think, wore it? Her, I think that's enough. I could say she wore it no, her I, whole life, and they've predicted everything. I think that's enough. Is the guy's name really Robert Kane? Because that's the name of the guy who made up Batman. <laughs> Bob Kane. <laughs> Yeah, Bob Kane it's is the creator of it's Batman. It's a different Bob Kane, I'm pretty sure. As, as far as we know, awesome. it's a different. Uh, it's a different. That would be awesome. And, and mind you, Batman became Batman because of an early childhood experience yeah. where he saw his, exactly. his parents. Perfect example, Dave. He's not really if, responsible. If he came, if he came to understand <laughs> that he became Batman because of that experience, don't you think he would say that's okay? That, that that formed me. Well, he does understand it very well, yeah. and he's he embraces it. He embraces exactly. it in a Frankfurtian. Wolfian exactly. way. <laughs> his uh, his endorsement of it redounds through his the <laughs> infinite hierarchy of it. Uh, all right, before we get too nerded out, although um, the you know that's also true of Spider Man. That's true for most origin stories. That's sort of interesting. Is yeah. that it's just this chance event, and often a chance event where they. But I I, I guess the implicit idea is right. That could happen to some people, and they wouldn't devote their lives to saving Gotham City for right. their uh, but but for him it woke him up you yeah. know and we don't right. have, we love redemption stories so if but but I don't think that we assume that it couldn't have gone any other way in those redemption stories yeah so one last thing so Eddie just did a post on the Flickers of Freedom blog which is the free will moral responsibility blog that was criticizing my view, sort of criticizing my view that I defended in my book, Relative Justice. And in a, in a nutshell, just because you need to know a little bit about the, the, the view, 
I'm just surprised you have a view that, that's been actually written. He has a lot of thought experiments to, to defend his view. I'm surprised that you're surprised given that um, I think we've talked about it a couple times on the podcast. I published a book two years ago that I thought maybe you would have at least glanced at. Uh, I, think I, I think I saw it once on Google Scholar. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, the view is essentially that there's no one right answer to questions about what is required for moral responsibility and free will. That different cultures and different types of cultures have fundamentally different intuitions, attitudes, and norms about moral responsibility. I definitely remember because that's how you were excusing your Costa Rican affair. Um, Because you were like, in Costa Rica, they actually have this very different view culturally that it's totally okay. It's totally okay. And so long as I'm actually in Costa Rica. (laughs) And and again, uh, whatever happens in Costa Rica stays in Costa Rica, although apparently not because... (laughs) Uh, it's actually not a broader form of moral relativism where anything would be okay in another country. It's, or at least all I was committing myself to was that there are fundamentally different norms and attitudes about what's required for moral responsibility, for you to deserve blame, punishment, or reward. So anyway, Eddie just did a post on the blog, which is a kind of – it's a, it's a critique slash elaboration of the view. Do you well, want to describe it? Well, first tell, tell people what you respond from this – I mean what you conclude from this diversity of possible practices. You conclude that that means moral responsibility – doesn't exist? No. no, that there's no single answer to what's required to be morally responsible. Okay, so I call, call the view, unfortunately. I, what? You call it metaskepticism. Metaskepticism. But a better term might be a kind of relativism because yeah. I, I do say in the book that, you know, there are still – there might be within a particular culture or intuition group or however I describe it, there might be uh, better and worse – uh, uh, ways of regarding moral responsibility, but there's not. Uh, it's it's more of an anti-universalist. In other words, if you're going to be a compatibilist or an incompatibilist, or you're going to have this or that compatibilist view about what's required for moral responsibility, you can't be universalist about yeah, it. You can't yeah. think that's just objectively true. Right. There's no way of justifying or defending that. that. That's the view. That way of describing it makes it look like my view that I'm floating here is, is really just a, an elaboration more than a critique. I mean, I mean, I'm basically trying to suggest that if we're pluralists about morality and about what makes things true or false in the moral sphere, then your sort of view just suggests that there might be lots of conditionals that, that are true. If you're in this sort of culture, this is a better way or this is the way to understand blame and responsibility and even free will if you're in that sort of culture with different conditions or a different historical context then this set of practices and beliefs and concepts are going to be the right ones and within each culture like you just said there can be truths about applying those concepts and or developing those practices in better and worse ways but there can also be a sort of meta truth about each of these conditionals being true, which means that, in my view, you shouldn't be a metaskeptic. You should be a pluralist. pluralist. Yeah, and say and say and 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 you might even looking across these contexts say, you know what? If we could build a context, a culture, 
uh, society with these sorts of conditions and attributes and yeah, psychological conditions right. and histories and all that. And even psychology. I mean, maybe we have to change human psychology in subtle ways. Um, but if we could do that, then this set of moral responsibility practices would be ideal for the types of creatures right. we are. So I guess if I disagree with that elaboration of the view, it's that you're sort of assuming that there might be a single ideal set of moral responsibility practices for a particular group, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. And I think, you know, uh, at the more extreme end, I might be tempted towards a more subjectivist understanding of moral responsibility, where not only does it matter what culture you're in, but it matters, like, what time of life you're in. <laughs> like, whether you have kids or not. You know, like, all these kinds of issues yeah. actually play a huge role in I, deter- I just yeah. – I don't get that, though, because I, I totally am with you on the psychological side of things. That, like, the kinds of things that you're going to focus on will surely change depending on your culture or your, or your particular life stage or what city you were brought up in or whatever. But But – but I, I just don't I, – I guess my main, my main difficulty with the way that you guys have been describing it, and I grant my ignorance here, is how the hell would you resolve conflict between you and someone younger than you? Or you and some – I just – and that seems to be – it seems like giving up on the possibility of resolving conflict. Well, only resolving conflict about a very specific philosophical question about what are the precise conditions about to, resp- yeah, to be morally responsible and to deserve blame. Well, and, and- – yeah, which are important, which are important questions, right? I mean, you you would want your your, for instance, pen, penal system to to right. to kind of depend on the answers to those questions. You want a you want a unified legal system. I mean, I would I wouldn't go as far as Tamler. I would say I would say that you could have you could certainly have disagreement within a context or culture, and it would be based on knowing a lot of facts about people. You know, this this the actual facts of that culture. And what makes for human flourishing in that culture, using the practices of moral responsibility, using the practices of blame and legal punishment in order to create the best cooperative situation. I mean, you could have these kind of meta facts about what's good for humans, cooperation, not killing each other randomly, holding people accountable for various things. I mean, I think those things could be true across these systems, but then how they get played out in different systems can be variable. But but I guess what I'm objecting to, so let's try to be as concrete as possible, yeah. right? It could be that, you know, say Dave and I have a certain kind of friendship, if you can even call it that. A, a love that shall not be named. <laughs> <laughs> Forbidden love. Wait, wait, so it was you two in Costa Rica? I didn't want to say anything. But where is this going? A bad, this is going a bad place. No, I guess jealousy. my idea is that it kind of depends on the particular people who are involved to what extent somebody might deserve blame for the exact same act committed under the exact same circumstances. I doubt it. Uh, not not and, if they have the same psychological capacities and opportunities and all that too. I don't get. I, I don't. I don't see that. I guess I. Yeah. No. I, I mean. I'm, I'm, this is not defended in the book, but it's defended by me now. That <laughs> that the re- responsibility is a lot more. 
context dependent and relationship specific and not something that you could specify objectively outside of a particular relationship or a context. Uh, I would just add types to everything you just said. Outside of particular relationship types or outside of particular context types. But, I mean, but, but there's no types of relationships. There are different kinds of friends, yeah, different kinds of marriages, ah. different kinds of yeah. – there are tokens. So, so there, there are rule, There are there are just as many rules as there are people. Is the no, I mean there, there's some truth to that. Or there's dyads. I mean you know, if I say that somebody's my friend, that, ha- that carries a different connotation than you know, if I say that they're my – husband or wife yeah but that doesn't mean that there aren't so many different kinds of friends with so many different understandings of when you're responsible and what's required and what are the norms i mean it might be that it might be that what you're what you're elaborating on here is something that i sort of mentioned in that post uh, which is that the the right sort of moral view is probably going to be an aristotelian sort of virtue theoretic view where there aren't going to be any universal rules there's just going to be people who are better able to figure out what's better and worse in different sorts of situations yeah, and it may be right. and it may be you know very specific to certain contextual parameters but that doesn't mean that those same people couldn't provide something that looks like a rule across yeah something things. like a vague right. a guideline yeah like people like aristotle would say in order to be responsible you have to do things voluntarily and you can't be ignorant that's a rule that should apply to every culture, and and I would even say well, no. it should apply like, to again, honor cultures. That, but <laughs> uh, that rules out so, collective responsibility. It rules out. Uh, Tamler Tamler's like a mentally challenged virtue theorist. I think <laughs> one one who is unwilling to abstract <laughs> abstract any generalities. <laughs> How did you ever make it in philosophy, Tamler? <laughs> I think it's that I came to these views too late for them to do anything about right, it. Right, right. <laughs> now I have tenure and they're like, what? What did we do? Yeah, that was a big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and now Tamler froze up. Tamler froze shocked. completely. <laughs> I, so, now that Tamler's completely frozen on audio, yeah. why don't I just take the time to say thank you, Eddie, for joining I, us. I'm sure that Tamler will thank thanks you. Thanks to you guys. This has been a lot of fun and I love your show, as does my wife. It's, At least she used to uh, until this one. <laughs> this one. Well, thanks a lot. We're uh, we're happy to, to have you on, and we'll bring you back for uh, for retort at some point. All right, sounds good.